Firstly, I want to say thank you to Johnny and Sophie and Mitch for just leading us so well in worship songs that just speak such truth about our Lord Jesus and uh, the sacrifice that he paid when he came to earth and suffered on the cross uh, to take on himself the sins that were ours, to take on himself the punishment that was ours and to set us free. And it's great to sing those words of truth. And actually, they fit so well with what we're going to be looking at uh, this afternoon. We're continuing our series in the letter uh, to the Hebrews. And today, we're going to be looking at uh, the first part of chapter 10. Uh, But before we read this, uh, I just want to remind you of the context. Uh, A few months ago, I I went to a motor museum in Gaydon. And... uh, uh, as you get older, uh, when you go to museums, you see things that you used to own. <laughs> uh, they're on display for those who were not privileged enough to, uh, to own items such as that. So this here uh, is not my exact first car, but is the model of car that I first drove. Uh, actually. To be fair, it was, that's a standard 10. I had a standard 8, which you know, was even, even worse. Um, uh, so uh, I had a standard 8. I was very proud of that standard 8. I inherited it from my mother, who uh, uh, you know, got a, another car. Um, and it served me well. It got me from A to B. It served a purpose. Uh, but the cars of today, they're just so different, aren't they? You know, sat-nav and... You know, you can speak to the car and it'll do things. It'll turn the radio on. It'll do all sorts of things. Loads of functions. As well as being safer than the cars of yesteryear and more economical than the cars of yesteryear. Cars have moved on uh, so much. They're more reliable now for the most part. They need less servicing. The Standard 8 and the cars of today have similar function, but actually it's achieved by a very different way, a far better model, a far better set of technology. My standard eight was functional for its time, but something better has come. You know, this is a very simple and probably wholly inadequate (laughs) illustration uh, for what was happening when the letter to the Hebrews was written. The recipients were first century Jews who had heard about Jesus and had put their trust in Jesus and were following him. But persecution had come. You know, life wasn't all rosy for them. Persecution had come and they were in danger of drifting away from their faith and back to the synagogues and traditions that they grew up with, that were part of their Jewish heritage. And as we've worked our way through the letter, we've seen repeated warnings to them not to drift, not to harden your hearts, to persevere. In chapter 2 we read, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Just as I wouldn't go back to my old car, much as I loved it at the time, the writer is exhorting these Jewish believers 
not to return to the meaningless and ineffectual rituals and traditions of their former lives. They were put in place for their forefathers, but they were always intended to point forward to the coming of Jesus. So he urges them not to ditch following Jesus. We're going to read the first 18 verses of chapter 10. If you've got your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to uh, get them out and follow uh, the reading in your Bible or on your iPad or iPhone or whatever. Uh, But the words will come up on the screen. So chapter 10 and verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first order, first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's given to us to instruct us, to encourage us, to teach us. And we pray this afternoon that as we look at this passage that you will speak truth into our hearts. I pray that you would help us to understand this passage 
and for each one of us to understand the true meaning and the application of this passage to us. That the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners such as us. And there is only one way in which sin can be dealt with, and that is through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. We want to thank you so much for the truth contained in these verses. Pray that you will speak them into our hearts now and apply them into our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, those of you who are regulars here may have a a feeling of deja vu as we uh, read our passage today. One of the pieces of advice that uh, public speakers uh, are given these days is to tell people what you're going to say, then tell them, and then tell them what you've told them. You repeat it. You know, you get your message across on more than one occasion, and that's just what the writer of this letter is doing. You may recall similar words from chapter 8, which Owen covered a couple of weeks ago. So I'm not going to cover this passage section by section, but rather pick out for us a few differences between the Old and the New Covenant. Essentially to compare and contrast the two based on what we've just read. Before we do that, though, let's first consider what is a covenant. At its most basic, it's a solemn agreement. In this context, a solemn agreement made between God and his people. A God who always wanted relationship with mankind. The word translated covenant could also be translated as testament. So the Old Covenant or the Old Testament describes God's relationship with his people Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham and then subsequently made a a covenant or renewed that covenant with Moses. And this Old Covenant set out laws, requirements, regulations that the people were required to obey and contained a requirement for animal sacrifices as they failed to live up to those laws. The people knew what God required of them. That wasn't the problem. But they were unable to fulfill these requirements. Ever since the time of Adam and Eve, uh, when they went uh, uh, against God's instructions, In the Garden of Eden, man's default position has been to go his own way, to want to rule his own life, to think he knows best, and to do so, in in doing so, to reject God. Israel was unfaithful to their covenant with God. The people turned to false gods, they rebelled against God, just as Adam and Eve had done in the Garden. And yet God, in his mercy, sent prophets to warn them. But they failed to heed the warnings. And as a result, they spent years, years in exile. We read in Nehemiah chapter 8 that they asked Ezra, when they returned from exile, to read them from the book of the law of Moses. And it says they were attentive and confess their sin. And you think, hallelujah, gosh. 
And then in, verse t- and in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, they recommitted themselves to the commandments. And yet, they still went against them. They were unable to fulfill them. The prophecy of Jeremiah that the writer to the Hebrews quoted in chapter 8 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago speaks of the old covenant. He likens that covenant to a marriage relationship. He says that the unfaithfulness was not on the part of the husband. The husband being God. How could it be when we know that God never breaks his promises? But the failure was on the part of his people. And Jeremiah, in his prophecy, points forward to the new covenant, to the coming of Jesus, who would come as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, so that those who put their trust in him would become his people, the bride of Christ, the church. With that as background, we return to our passage in Hebrews 10, where there are some glorious truths about this better covenant, the better sacrifice, truths that we need to get hold of. The first is that this better sacrifice or covenant is a reality, not a shadow. In chapter 8, the writer talks of the gifts and offerings required as sacrifices under the law, serving as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. And here in chapter 10, verse 1, he tells us that the law isn't the real deal. It's just a hint. It's a foretaste or a shadow of what is to come. It points us towards Jesus. I have a couple of pictures to illustrate the inadequacy of a shadow. I wonder what can you tell me from these shadows about the people in the picture? Can you tell me the color of their hair? The color of their eyes? No, I don't think so. Can you tell me how tall they are? I doubt that very much. Or how well dressed they are? And because we can't interact with them, they're just shadows, we know nothing of their personality or their background or their story. Again, what's captured in this next image? You can speak. Statue of Liberty. Liberty. So, you can tell me lots about... Oh, too soon. You can tell me (laughs) lots about the Statue of Liberty from that, can't you? the colors and the detail that's in the Statue of Liberty, well, I don't think so. If you went all the way to New York and just saw that, you'd be pretty disappointed. But if you saw instead the real thing, you see it in all its glory. And what we see here is that the old covenant And the old sacrifices were just a mere shadow of what is offered by the new covenant. The law was always intended to point the way forward to the coming Messiah, to Jesus. The sacrifices offered by priests for the people's failure to live up to the law 
merely served to remind them of their failures. The second contrast we're going to look at is desire versus obligation. From what we've read in this passage and over the past few weeks, it's clear that Israel knew what was required of them. They knew the commandments and the regulations that had been handed down to Moses. In Deuteronomy 6, one of those, in fact the greatest commandment, was that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It was always the intention that God's people would love him and actually that their obedience would flow from the love that they had for him. But instead, his people chose to do things their own way. They wanted to be in control. For them, the law was an obligation and they rebelled against it time and time again. So what's different with the new covenant? Well, in verse 16 of our passage, we read, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This is so different. God promises to bring about a change in those who put their trust in him. A change within us. He promises to put his laws on our hearts. His commitment to us is to create in us a desire. A desire and an ability to fulfill his laws. To live lives that are pleasing to him. We, whose former disposition was to rebel against God, have been transformed into those whose desire is to please him if we'd become Christians. And the Holy Spirit is given to assist us in doing just that. A desire versus an obligation. And then thirdly, what I see in the, in the difference between the two covenants is the blood of Christ versus the blood of animals. In the first section of our passage today, the writer says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You know, this speaks of the ineffectiveness of the blood of animals to deal with sin and shame. We all know that before you become Christians, you bear that weight of sin and shame. You know that you're far away from God and that you need to be changed, but there's nothing that you can do of yourself to bring about that change. 
Jesus has dealt with sin and shame. The blood of animals and, and bulls could not do anything. Those animal sacrifices that were made by the high priest, they were there to clean outwardly those who were ceremonially unclean. They didn't deal with the inner man. They didn't deal with the sin that was within them. In fact, they just acted as a continual reminder to them of those sins. But in glorious contrast, the writer tells us that the first sacrifice has now ceased and that by the second sacrifice, Jesus himself on the cross, we have been sanctified. Note the tense there, we have been sanctified. In using these words, he makes it clear that it is a done deal. If you've put your trust in Jesus, confessing your sin and accepting the forgiveness he offers through the blood shed on the cross, you no longer stand before God in the filthy state that you once were. You have been made holy. Past tense. You have been made holy. Jesus, in his death on the cross, bore our sin and our shame, and in exchange gave us his righteousness so that we could stand before God knowing that we are accepted. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5 and verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus, the perfect, spotless Son of God, who knew no sin, who lived a perfect life, who didn't deserve that penalty of a death on the cross, became sin for us, that we might be set free, that we might become the righteousness of God the perfect righteous Son of God imputed that righteousness to us. Just consider for a moment the sacrifice, the nature of that sacrifice. In the first sacrifice we have animals who had no choice, no choice in the matter, and had no idea why they were being slaughtered. In the second, we have the sinless Son of God who willingly suffered and died in our place so that we who were utterly unworthy could know forgiveness and be made to stand worthy before our Maker. It's amazing, isn't it? You're very quiet. It's amazing truth. And it gets better even better, because the sacrifice, this new sacrifice, was once only compared with the repeated sacrifices that were offered by the priests. So it's the duration of that sacrifice and the effectiveness of that sacrifice. The first sacrifice not only had limited 
efficacy, but it didn't endure. We see from verse 1 that the same sacrifices were offered every year. And in verse 11, that the priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. In contrast to this, verse 10 tells us that the sacrifice of Jesus was once for all. In other words, for all time. He confirms this in verse 12 where he writes, for when Christ had offered For when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. A single sacrifice that was effective for all time. You know, the closest illustration I could think of, and again, it's an imperfect uh, illustration. You you can't come up with perfect illustrations for, for some of this stuff, but the closest I could think of was... Uh, of someone suffering from kidney failure, their treatment may entail attending a dialysis center three times a week or undergoing dialysis treatment, home dialysis treatment, often more regularly than three times a week. Every time they go to the hospital or every time they go for that treatment, They're reminded of the fact that their kidney has failed. However, when a donor kidney becomes available and a transplant takes place, there's no longer any need for dialysis. The need is gone. As I say, it's it's an imperfect illustration, but actually it captures something of what's going on in this passage. That sacrifice of Jesus has meant that we don't have to continually offer sacrifices, meaningless sacrifices, because he's done it all. What Jesus has done for us is so much more significant than that illustration of the donor kidney or any other illustration I could give. In his one sacrifice, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Paul tells the Corinthians, again in uh, in his second letter, chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, before you get carried away, Do we live lives that are perfect? Do we no longer sin? Well, I can answer that for myself. Of course not. And I think I can answer it for you as well. We fail in so many ways. But what I know from this passage is that while I'm still learning and while I'm still growing to be more like Jesus... He has already secured the end position. And that is that I am considered perfect and worthy because of his righteousness imparted to me. As if to reinforce that fact, the fact that the sacrifice of Jesus was a single act, the writer says in verse 13 that having given his life for us, he sat down. 
He sat down at the right hand of God. You know, that speaks to me of a work that is finished. There's nothing extra to be done. The work of Jesus cannot be added to, and it doesn't need to be added to. You know, some of us maybe are still going through life feeling that we can add something to what Jesus has already done, do something that will earn his favor, will earn uh, the kind of gift that he's already given to us. It's unnecessary. He's done all that is required. All we need to do is to recognize that he has paid the penalty for our sins and to yield our lives to him. Having triumphed over sin and death, he now sits alongside the Father, sharing in his rule and reign. And then there's the glorious reminder of our hope that he is seated there until the final act of God's plan of redemption. When all his enemies are defeated as Jesus comes again. That's the promise. That's our hope. You know, it's a glorious truth, isn't it? The work of Jesus is finished, that we are considered worthy already. It's done. It's a done deal. And that actually Jesus is seated at the right hand of his Father, confirming that that work is finished. And he's seated there until he comes again. This is the assurance that we have, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. And then the final comparison I want to draw is just, it just builds on this, it's amazing, that our sins are remembered no more versus the continual reminder that the Jews had of their sins when time and time again the priests offered their sacrifices. Verse 3 of our passage tells us that the repeated offering of sacrifices by the priests serves as a continual reminder to the people of their sins. How dreadful is that? To know that you failed and to be constantly reminded of it. You know, I made many mistakes as a parent. There were times when I would remind my kids that the wrong that they'd done, they'd done so many times before. You know, repeated mistakes. I'm so thankful that our Father in heaven doesn't treat us like that. I'm so thankful that he tells us he will remember our sins no more. He doesn't dredge them up or continually remind us of our past failings. The prophet Micah wrote, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. 
you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You know, he treads our sins underfoot and he casts them into the sea so that they're not continually drawn up. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. Holocaust survivor Corrie Tenboom, many of you may have read her books, knew of the importance of forgiveness. You would, wouldn't you, if you were a Holocaust a survivor? And she picked up on the theme of Micah's prophecy. In her book, Tramp for the Lord, she says that her favorite mental picture was of forgiven sins thrown into the sea. She wrote, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And she goes on to say, I believe God then places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. No fishing allowed. She reminds us that when God forgives our wrongdoing, we're forgiven fully. He does not continually remind us of our shortcomings. So you know what? We shouldn't keep dredging up our sins and failures and leave it living under the condemnation of those. We shouldn't feel condemned for our sins, our thought lives, our actions. Rather, we can and we should accept his grace and his forgiveness, following him in freedom. I don't know about you, but I find this passage so releasing. I find it so encouraging that Jesus has done a complete work that we don't have to continually offer sacrifices time and time again. My encouragement to you this afternoon is let's place our dependence upon him, knowing that Jesus has accomplished everything that is needed. His sacrifice is all sufficient for our eternal well-being, not just for now, but for eternity. And when we place our trust on him, it will be evident in our choices, in how we set our priorities, in terms of the use of our time, use of our money and our possessions, our attitude toward them, the use of our gifting. No longer will we seek to earn his favor. I'd say it would also reflect itself in the way we parent our children whether we train them up in a way that causes them to place their trust in God rather than in material possessions. We're going to come and share communion together now. It's a family meal, and we are family. So it's a family meal for those who have accepted the single offering of Jesus on the cross. Single offering that he made which has perfected all of those who are being sanctified. We don't have to be perfect to share in this meal. But what we do have to be is those who have put our trust in Jesus, those who are seeking to follow him, those who are seeking to be sanctified daily as we walk with him. We can rejoice that through his sacrifice, he's dealt with all of our sins, 
and he remembers them no more. So I'm going to invite you in just a moment to uh, come up and take uh, some bread and take the cup uh, back to your seats and we shall all eat and drink uh, together uh, once I have uh, prayed uh, around that. But I want you to recognize the good news in this passage that we can come and take communion this afternoon joyfully knowing that the sacrifice of Jesus was all sufficient. He's done it all, and it's for all time if we put our trust in him.